Tonight, where are we? Um, come with me into a little scenario. Uh, if you want, you can close your eyes, but there's no pressure to do that. Picture yourself in a room, and three people walk into this room. A genie, a doctor, and Jesus of Nazareth. They're in this room with you. And you get the gap now to go up to each one of them, uh, approach them, and have them say to you, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? It's quite an amazing, very open-ended question. And <clears throat> how would you respond to each one of those people? What, what would be the first thing that pops into your head? Um, what would you say? And do you think that two of your responses to two of those individuals would be more similar than the one to the third? And if so, which two are more similar and which one is the sort of outlier? And, I, you know, there's kind of the, the quick answer and then there's the honest answer, which might even come to you much later this evening when you, you might wake up in cold sweats when you, uh, when you get there. But I think the honest answers to these questions, to be honest, um, reveal a lot about who we are, what we view life to be about, uh, what we think the afterlife is about, if we think of such things, um, and particularly who we believe each of these people to be at their core, in their essence, who each of these three people are. So how would you answer? Hold on to that question. We're going to keep visiting that room uh, throughout the evening as we journey through our stories. But where are our stories tonight? They are in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time, Mark is probably the earliest biography of Jesus. And today we are coming to the end of Act 2 of what's essentially a three-act drama, a three-act play in many ways. And the first act was up north in a place called Galilee. Jesus was introducing himself, doing his ministry. Act 2, which we're in, he's been journeying down from Galilee towards Jerusalem, where Act 3 is going to take place. And Act 2 has been filled with a whole bunch of different things. Uh, you would have been a part of it over the last few months if you've been here. Jesus has been doing blocks, uh, blocks of teaching. He's had some quite hectic words to say about sin and hell and divorce and all sorts of stuff. And we went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration where uh, God came down in a cloud and Jesus shone brightly, an amazing scene. We've had encounters with um, demon-possessed people and having demons cast out. There's also been, interestingly, a few instances of interactions with children that Jesus has highlighted or Mark has highlighted in his, his account. Um, but Jesus has highlighted the children for their childlike faith, for their dependence. And he said consistently, um, the way you treat children says a lot about who you are and who you view God to be. Um, and that our faith is meant to be like the children's. Uh, the people who get to inherit and enter the kingdom of God are those who view Jesus and approach Jesus in a childlike manner. And last week, we encountered the rich young ruler. And right before that story, there was an encounter with children. But the rich young ruler, um, unfortunately, was unable to leave behind his wealth and possessions, in many ways, his sort of functional God, in order to actually follow Jesus, the true God. He said he had done all these things, but he wasn't able to let go of this slice of his life. And he had said, sorry, Jesus, that one is actually, you can't have that. That's higher than you, and so I'm going to follow this instead of following you. So that's where we're at in the narrative. And by the end of today's story, essentially, the stage is going to be set for Act 3. The next time in Mark, Jesus is going to be entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. So we're right at the end of Act 2 here. And Act 2 basically ends with these two stories. Um, the first is the third conversation. And what I mean by that is Act 2 
is held together actually by three conversations. It starts with a conversation, there's a conversation in the middle, and there's a conversation at the end. And all these conversations basically sound the same. Jesus predicts his death, burial, and resurrection, and he follows it up with a teaching or training about what life looks like in the kingdom of God, or what it'll be like for followers of Jesus coming in his wake. And so there's the third one of those conversations tonight. We've, we've covered the other two in previous messages. And then there's the final healing in the Gospel of Mark, the last time Jesus physically um, heals someone. And so these two stories are kind of held together. They're kind of a compare and contrast situation, which you'll see as we, as we get into them. But this is how Act 2 is going to end. So let's dive into the third conversation. We're in Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. It's a very interesting thing, amazed and afraid. But everyone seems to say, the fact that Jesus had been saying, I'm going to my death, and yet he was leading the pack well ahead, it it just showed how resolute he was about going towards his destiny. And that amazed some people and freaked out some people that this guy knew he was going to die, and yet he was marching on. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man himself will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's quite a bizarre response if you, if you take a moment to think about it. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you'll drink, and with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you'll be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as I say, it's the third conversation that roughly sounds like this. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, and then he has a bit of a a story. Previously, he's spoken about denying yourself and following him, or you want to be first, then be last. And he's kind of building on, on, on what he's spoken about before. But what's unique to this particular conversation? What's unique here? It's the first time where Jesus explicitly uh, brings up crucifixion as the way he's going to die. Previously, he's just spoken about the fact that he's dying. We've got crucifixion here specifically. And he's got a lot of graphic detail. If you go read it, I mean, he talks about, I'm going to be spat on. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be flogged. And then he speaks uh, quite accurately as well about the fact that he's going to be delivered over to the the, the Jewish establishment, who are then going to hand him over to the Gentiles, who are the Romans, the colonial powers of the day. And that's exactly how their sort of legal system would have worked. And by the time you get to the end of the Gospel of Mark, you'll see that all of these things have 
come true, just as he, he said they would. But the key phrase in this conversation, I'm sure you heard it because I repeated it, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus to James and John, what do you want me to do for you? Now, previously, Jesus has, as I said, spoken about his, his suffering, and there's been several interesting responses straight after. Peter, first up, said, no, it's not going to happen to you, so he was in denial. Um, then the second time that Jesus brought it up, the disciples were all got competitive about who was the most legit among them. Um, and here we've got two of them coming to Jesus and say, hey, we want to be at your right hand at your le- and your left hand in your glory. The two great positions of power when you come in your glory. And we got to remember that they think Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for some sort of extreme political military takeover. And so they're viewing themselves, or they're wanting to view themselves, as kind of his deputies, you know, riding in and, and being the two, the, the, the two legit guys on his left and right. And basically what this conversation reveals to us again is that the disciples still don't get Jesus. They don't get Jesus. They want status, they want position, they want power. They end up really hacking off the, the other 10 disciples, which is totally fair. Uh, I think that's, 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 that's to be expected. What's interesting, though, is Jesus' response when you'll notice there, he reveals the fact that there actually are positions of honor in the kingdom. His response is, no, there's no such thing like that in my kingdom. My kingdom's different. No, he actually says, no, there, there is a right hand and a left hand. But it's just not up to him, Jesus said. That's something that's, that's, that he's leaving with his father. His father is going to determine who those people are. But you can't earn your way to those positions. They're not reserved for the most ambitious disciples, even necessarily for the most faithful disciples. I was trying to think in my car yesterday, who, who might these two people be? I was like, maybe it's Moses and Elijah because they were both up on the mountain. Then I was like, okay, but that leaves Paul out of the way. So I was like, I've got no idea who these people are. But someone's getting left out. Some, some legit people in the Bible are getting left out. And maybe it's even going to be someone in this room. Who knows? But, um, but let's see. But what's interesting about, about this here is that what we learn about Jesus and what they learn about Jesus is that there are some requests that Jesus either cannot or will not grant us. There are some requests that we bring to Jesus that either he cannot or will not grant us. In this case, it's up to the Father. He said, look, it's not mine to decide. God the Father's going to do that. Um, it's something that isn't up to him. But also, it isn't something that Jesus is about. He's about to go to his death. It's, again, it's a very badly timed conversation from the disciples. Jesus is heading to his death, and they're like, can we be your awesome guys? Um, and so it's just not who he is. It's not what he's about. And they obviously approach him, but the way they approach him is also just crazy. They come to him, and they say, Jesus, you just spoke about your death. Grant us whatever we want. That's how the conversation opens up. Grant us whatever we want. Jesus, listen up. Can you do our bidding? Can we just come with whatever we want in the world? Can you please do that for us? We'll, we'll, we'll tell you what it is later. Can you just agree to this, first of all? And the truth is, Jesus is not a cosmic butler, or if we go back to our room, Jesus is not like a genie. He doesn't, he's not here to just give us every single thing that we ask for, that we desire, or that we want. That's not who he is. That's not what he's about. But I do want to ask us, um, do our prayers sometimes or often actually sound a bit like this? Does it, do, do, if, if we think back to our prayers uh, from the last week, those of us who are Christ followers, the last week, the last month, um, how many prayers have sounded quite genie-ish or we've come to Jesus perhaps in, with that type of heart saying, do, do, do my bidding, do my bidding, genie. Okay, go back to the room. 
Go back to the room. Genie, doctor, Jesus. What do you ask Jesus? Here's some things we could pray for. End COVID. Jesus, do whatever I ask. End COVID. Or make my life better. Make my life better. Or make my life easier. Jesus, give me that relationship. Please, give me that relationship. That job. Jesus, there's that job, that opening. I'm, I'm, I'm really over my job right now. Give me that job. I got, I got, I got one shot here. Give me, the, give me that job. Or give me that opportunity. Jesus, give me that opportunity. If I get that opportunity, Jesus, I swear, it's going to be the greatest thing for your glory, and I will use that opportunity for your kingdom. Just give it to me. Just, just do it for me. I don't think these are necessarily bad things to pray for, some of them. But the point is, I think Jesus is far too kind, far too good, far too wise to do basically what Bruce Almighty did, if you remember that movie, where he gets to be God and he gets the emails from basically every single person praying in the world and he can't do, take it and he just clicks reply all and he just says yes. Ah! And he hits send. Poof! And everyone gets all their wildest dreams. I think Jesus is, is far too good and far too kind and far too wise to do that with, with some of our wildest requests. And to be honest, I reckon each, each and every one of us in this room, if we had enough time and we had enough life experience, we wouldn't want to get whatever we asked for at a whim. I reckon in 2020 hindsight, if we look back, we'd be like, poof, I'm so glad I never got that opportunity or ended up with that person or whatever it could look like. And um, I can tell you this because it's going to happen in Harrison's life. It's going to happen. He's not going to remember it to really recall the 2020 hindsight, but just literally in this, here's some dumb examples. In the last, the last week, um, Harrison loves carrying wet faith cloths around now. I've sent some of you his videos of doing some, some work around the house. And it's fantastic, actually. I released the guy to, to play the gift. But, um, but um, the problem is he likes taking wet face cloths now and approaching the plug sockets, especially by my bed, and unplugging my phone and unplugging three-prong plugs and just messing around. It's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. We're moving house tomorrow, and he has figured out how to shunt a few boxes and make stairs um, up to our window uh, of our third-story flat with no burglar bars. Not a great idea. Um, this picture happened, uh, I think, one week ago. And here's Harrison, his deepest desires being acted out on. I want to eat and drink everything from under the kitchen cupboard. We've got jick, we've got bleach, we've got... Um, that's. Uh, washing powder all over the floor there. But in all honesty, get into, his, get into his heart and mind for a moment. These things look delightful to his eyes. They look delightful to his eyes. They are, they are the desires of his heart. Everything in his being, to be honest, wants to be authentic to what's happening inside. And he views me as the guy who comes. There's a video of this, actually. I'm shouting at him. Um, but he, he views me as the, 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 the grumpy ogre who's coming and bringing my oppressive rules and shutting him down. And I am so glad that I love him more than he thinks I do and that I'm wiser than he thinks I am and I can, I can say no to these moments in his life. And I wonder how many moments in our lives are like that with God having that perspective that we just don't have. And man, if we knew, we'd be so grateful to him that he stopped us getting reply all. The truth is, 
Sometimes we don't listen in those moments to God, and there's something we know it's not a good idea, and yet we persist, and we persist, and we persist, and we ask God, give me that, give me that, give me that, and probably one of the worst things that can happen is what he often will do eventually is to say to us, okay, you know what, you want that thing? Here it is, have it, and it it wrecks us. It causes a train wreck of our lives, and so much stuff goes wrong. And you go read the Old Testament, there's plenty of examples. The main one that comes to my head is the people of Israel are demanding a king from God. They, they keep saying to God, we want to be like all the other nations. We don't want to just go according to your rules. Give us a king. Give us a king. We want to be like the other nations. And God said, it's not a good idea. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. They said, I don't care. We do not care. Give us a king. And so God says, fine, hand you over to your desires. Here's a king. And it's absolutely terrible. It's absolutely terrible when they get King Saul. Man, we pray for these things. Give me this. Give me opportunity. I reminded of this phrase from Martin Lloyd-Jones preacher in London last century, said the worst thing that can happen to a man is for him to succeed before he's ready. We want that stuff. We need to learn to, to have this stuff. So they don't get Jesus. They don't get who Jesus is, James and John. They're still not clicking. But also they don't get the subversive nature of the kingdom. They don't get the subversive nature of the kingdom. They're, once again, expecting glory without suffering. But Jesus has said, true, true life is to deny yourself True greatness is to be a servant to all and a slave to all. He said that today again. We're called to serve rather than to be served. And Jesus, much like last week when he was with the rich young ruler, and it just says that, that one line, and he loved him. And then he responds to him. Today again, I think Jesus looked at James and John, and he loved them too much to let them just go on living in their fantasy world with wrong views of Jesus, wrong views of the kingdom, and to be honest, just completely wrong views of reality. And so what he tells them is that his death is going to be the foundation and the example of the kingdom. That's where he lands the story. That's where he lands the story. He says true greatness, if you think about it, is to die for your friends. He says that elsewhere in the other gospels. True, great, true, true greatness is to, and true love is to take a bullet for someone else. And far more than taking a bullet, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he's going to the cross, and he's going to take the cup of cosmic wrath. He says he's going to drink a cup. He's drinking the cup of cosmic wrath that is meant for you and I to drink because of our sin against God. He's going to take it upon himself. He's going to come and serve us by giving his life as a ransom for many. That's what he's going to do. He gives his life, ransom being he pays a price for our freedom. He takes the just penalty that should be on us upon himself, and he atones for our sins. The theological term is substitutionary atonement. That's what happens. Substitutionary atonement. And you think about the moment that Jesus was atoning for our sins on the cross. You've got James and John who are saying, we want to be at your right hand and your left hand. Well, when Jesus was doing his greatest act in the world, he had someone on his right and on his left. It was the two thieves who were crucified on either side of him. It's a great picture of what Jesus actually calls us to. He literally said it, take up your cross and follow me. It's what's going to happen to James and John. James is going to get beheaded. John's going to be boiled alive. That's where they're going. That's where they're going. Jesus died for our sins so that we can be free. That's the foundation of the kingdom, but it's also the example of the kingdom life. We're called to lay down our lives for the people who don't know Jesus. We're called to 
have our lives embody, not just, not, not just speak the message of the gospel, but embody it. When people look at us, they say, like, geez, these are people who do follow a crucified Savior. So when we are experiencing suffering and we are experiencing hardship, I, re- I just want to say it now, I don't want us to be surprised. And we are, we are going to be surprised, but we should look back and say, Jesus told us what we were signing up for. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? James and John didn't get Jesus. They didn't get the kingdom. And so to be honest, they answered the wrong thing. They answered in completely the wrong way. So you're back in that room. You're with the genie, the doctor, and Jesus. James and John have basically confused Jesus and the genie. Where are we at? Where are you at right now in that room? Is Jesus tugging you in a different direction? Are you just realizing you've conflated them yourself? Let's move on to the final healing. The final healing. Read with me from verse 46. The story continues. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples a great, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. I'm sure you heard the question again there. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? So let's just unpack this story quickly. We're at a place called Jericho. That might sound familiar to some of you. If you've read the Old Testament, it's the place where they marched around the wall seven times and they fell down. This is not exactly the same city. It's nearby. It's kind of an upgrade. So if you've heard of New Delhi, there's also a place called Old Delhi. It's right nearby. It's kind of the upgraded version of the city. And that's what we've got here. And Jericho, to be honest, was not unlike the city of Cape Town in that um, it was literally set up initially as a refreshment station for people traveling from one side of the known world to the other, which is exactly what Cape Town was initially set up for. Uh, Jericho was based around an oasis, so it was like a legit uh, place with palm trees and water and in the middle of a very arid land, and so it was the perfect place to do that. And... um, you would have had people traveling all the way from the east, crossing the Jordan, kind of like Jesus has done now, going into all the regions of Judea and then going all the way back. You would have had all this crisscross traffic. And so it's actually the perfect, obvious place to find someone um, begging on the side of the road because there's so many people for them to, to beg from. And so we've got Bartimaeus here, and he's both blind and a beggar. And I, I'm assuming probably... Um, the, one of the reasons that he is a beggar is because he's blind. I reckon that has probably led into that. That's my assumption. Um, but he's the lowest of the low in that society. He really is the lowest of the low in that society. Um, and he is consistently dependent on others. He's just like a child would have been in that society. It's, the, it's a very similar picture to the ones we've had before. And in this scene, you'll notice that he's treated like a child. 
Last week when Paul was preaching, um, the disciples uh, prevented the little children from getting to Jesus. They try to come to Jesus, and it says the disciples rebuked them. And now here you've got Bartimaeus trying to get Jesus' attention, and you've literally got the same words there. The crowd rebuked him. This guy is, is like a child, and he's being treated like a child in this scene. And it's a very, very intentional connection that Mark is weaving in here. Jesus has been saying several times that we're meant to treat the, the lowest of the low in much higher regard than, than the average person. And here they are doing the exact opposite of what Jesus would be wanting and what Jesus has been teaching. And if we put ourselves in, in the scene and we look at Bartimaeus, I think if we're honest, we would expect him to possibly say other things than what he's saying here. I mean, let's just be honest. We could expect him to be angry at God, perhaps. He's, he's been blind for ages, maybe since birth. could expect him to come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, say sorry, repent for what you've done to me or what you've allowed to happen. How could you do this to me? How could you let this happen to me? You can imagine him coming to God and accusing him. I'm not saying that's right, but I'm saying we can imagine that. But unlike those possible responses, unlike the rich young ruler last week who came to Jesus and said to Jesus, hey, what can I do to enter eternal life and inherit the kingdom? And unlike James and John who come to Jesus and say, genie, do whatever we want, Bartimaeus is completely different. Bartimaeus is so different. He's far simpler. He's far more childlike. He's far more in line with who Jesus is. And he's far more um, with it in terms of what the kingdom of God is all about. And that's clear from what he says when it just says, he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. The son of David is a royal title, comes up twice in the Gospel of Mark, and it's connected to the Messiah, this, this, this person who would be anointed by God's Spirit to set people free from captivity, from sin, the whole package. And Bartimaeus recognized that Jesus is not just one of the, the random rabbis of the day. No, 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 no. He is the Messiah. He is the son of David. He is, he is the true king of Israel. He's the descendant of, of David, the greatest king of Israel. This is the Messiah, the one who's coming to set up a kingdom that will never be demolished. He's coming to sit on his throne eternally. This is the person who's coming to vanquish Satan's sin and death. This is the person who's coming to Israel to, to bless the nations as was always prophesied. Bartimaeus recognizes instantly this is who Jesus is. And so instead of coming to this person with his sort of do whatever I ask requests, his request is, is a humble one. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me is what he asks Jesus. And that's what prompts Jesus to say to him, okay, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And he asks for the restoration of his sight. He knows who Jesus is. He knows what Jesus is capable of. And he knows what he desperately needs. There's lots of great things he might want, but he gets what he desperately needs. He knows it. And unlike the rich young ruler from last week, Bartimaeus literally, I mean, it says that he, sp he sprang up, he throws off his coat, Paul was making this comparison last week, he leaves behind the one thing that he has, the one thing that he has, his coat, the thing that keeps him warm, the thing that he sleeps on, the thing that he probably uses to store some of the, the denarii that get thrown his way by people. 
and he's willing to let it go and follow Jesus. At the end of the story, follow Jesus to Jerusalem towards the crazy events that are coming. And what I want to highlight here is Bartimaeus, the man was blind, but friends, what he didn't have was what's often called blind faith. He was blind, but he didn't have blind faith. Bartimaeus had childlike faith in the person of Jesus. Childlike faith in the person of Jesus. He knew exactly who it was that he was trusting in. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. A very real, physical, historical person. And these are what our prayers should sound like. These are, these are the types of things that our prayers should be filled with. Humility, like Bartimaeus. Childlikeness. Dependence. Absolute trust. Asking God for help, for mercy, for him to reveal to us what we truly need. What do I really need, God? Help me, show me. These are the kinds of things that should characterize our our prayer. So let's go back to our scenario. We're in the room. Jeannie, doctor, Jesus. I want to put it to you that I think our prayers should sound a heck of a lot more like the doctor's than the genie. Okay, our request to Jesus, our response to Jesus, if there's two people that should sound a lot more similar, it's Jesus and the doctor rather than Jesus and the genie. You can go to the genie, and you can say to the genie, do whatever I want right now. I want the lottery. Paul told us last week, that's actually not a great idea. Um, but I want, I want, I want this, my wildest dreams to come true right now. And the genie can say, signed off, done. But unless... You've gone to the doctor, and you've made sure that there's nothing wrong under the surface, and you are clear. You don't know what might be coming for you. And the problem is, if you have something wrong underneath the surface, you might get your wildest dreams from the genie, but unless something is done about what's happening under the surface, death is coming. Death is coming. And you play those two scenarios out three years into the future, and you've got very different trajectories. Very different trajectories. One filled with dreams come true and death. And one filled with life. Those are the options. Those are the options. And so I really think God speaks through his word. And I think he's speaking now. And he's in his grace, in his tenderness, in his mercy to us as his people. He's saying to us, I'm calling you right now. He called Bartimaeus. He called Bartimaeus. He's calling us right now. See me correctly and see my kingdom correctly. See me correctly, see my kingdom correctly. When you come and pray to me, asking for help in circumstances is fine, but make sure you have the right perspective on everything. And then ask for the circumstances to change. Ask for breakthrough, ask for break in, but have the right perspective. Ask for preparation long before we ask for opportunity. That's what God would say to us right now. And the worst thing that can happen, ask ask Paul about his experience at the U2 concert a couple of years ago and the opening band. He'll tell you. That's his prime example. I don't want to mention names. It's his prime example of when (laughs) opportunity meets lack of preparation. We don't want that moment. When you come to God, ask God for his kingdom to come, not our kingdom to come. And here's one. I think God's saying this right now. Ask me to work in your heart and your life in this COVID season 
in a way that would be impossible in any other season. Ask for me to, to, to bring a miracle and, and relieve things, but make sure you don't miss what I'm wanting to do in your heart, in your life, in our community. Friends, these are the kinds of prayers that Jesus longs to answer. These are the kinds of prayers that Jesus is willing to answer. Jesus comes to each and every one of us and says, what do you want me to do for you? He is willing and he is able. And the problem is, I think often we don't pray these prayers. We pray the, the genie prayers. Oh my gosh, Jesus, deliver me from this thing. Because we've, through folly and through sin and through ignorance perhaps in God and his ways, we've got ourselves all the way down into a scenario where we do not know what to do. And we are in an absolute mess and we are in absolute turmoil. Perhaps there's debt, perhaps there's absolute relational tension. People say to you, why can't you go to your family for help? And you say, my family and I are like this because I've, I've caused so much issues. And we, we get into this moment and that's when we need the Hail Mary prayer. Jesus, genie, son of God, help me, get me out of this. And Jesus, to be honest, so often, and again, in his wisdom, doesn't say yes to that prayer. Sometimes he refuses to reward foolishness. And in the, the fire of our sort of consequences of our actions, he trains us and he pulls us back here and says, pray these prayers, pray these prayers. Come ask me to diagnose what's under the surface. Ask for preparation. Ask me to work in your life, work in your heart so that you'll never get to that situation because of your own folly and your own sin. That's what I think Jesus is hoping to recover in us tonight and prevent us from, some of us, from going there. But let me, let me end on this. Friends, Jesus of Nazareth, I promise you, from my own experience, and I'm sure many of you can attest, is far better than a genie. He's far better than a genie for so many reasons. But the one I'll say is he is capable of granting both physical and spiritual salvation, physical and spiritual healing. In this passage, in this very passage, at the end, when Jesus says to, to Bartimaeus, go your way, your faith has made you well. The, the very literal reading of that is, your faith has saved you. The, the Hebrews had a holistic concept. The whole thing, the whole thing was one package, physical well-being, spiritual well-being. And we believe that too. We, we should believe that too. If you are someone who has had your, that's just my son saying, how's it? If you've had your sins forgiven and you have salvation in your soul, then you can be guaranteed that one day on the other side of death, you will receive a physical resurrection immortal body. Physical healing will be yours. There will be no more sickness, no more sin, no more death. And even today, Jesus can take that future kingdom and he can bring it into the present with a sort of flash-forward moment and bring healing into the present age. But it's part of the whole package. It's part of the whole package. And this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. And friends, perhaps you're someone who's exploring the claims of Christianity. Can I, can I, can I clarify something to you? Because people often believe that people who are Christ followers and Christians, what that means is to take a clear-thinking, rational, clear-sighted person and ask them to throw that all away for blind faith in some sort of vague deity or vague destiny or, heaven forbid, faith in ourselves. That is not what we believe. That is not what life is about. You and I, the human race, 
are not clear-sighted people who need blind faith. We are all spiritually blind people who, like Bartimaeus, need childlike faith in the person of Jesus, to trust that person, to trust his words, to believe not just in him, but believe him when he speaks. Believe what's written in his word. Believe when his spirit speaks to you. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. And if you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, if that's you tonight, your first step is to place your faith in him. To say, Jesus, what you did on the cross, you're saying that that can pay for my sin, the debt that I owe, count me in. I trust you. I, I, I give me, credit that to my account. And if that is you sitting here today, I want to say to you, come to Jesus tonight as the great physician. Because to be honest, your diagnosis is bad. The diagnosis of the whole human race is bad. And get him to say there's something wrong. It needs to be fixed. And then trust him. Trust him as the great physician with miracle working hands to come and reach in and remove your old heart and give you a new heart. That's what Jesus has promised to do. That's the first step. And for the rest of us, we don't take the first step in faith and then grit the rest of our lives in our own effort. Every single step of the journey for the rest of our lives is a journey of faith and a step of faith. Every single thing, every, every act of obedience, all obedience is, is faith in action. Jesus, what do you say? Jesus, that sounds hectic, but okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to have faith in you, and I'm going to step out, or I'm going to step back, whatever it might be. And we're going to come to Jesus with our prayers, humbly, hopefully, like Bartimaeus, and say, God, what is the next step? What is the next step of faith for me? What is the next step in my journey? What do you need to reveal in my heart? Because to be honest, if the moment we become a Christ follower, we get a new heart, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us, our spiritual blinkers are taken off and we, we see Jesus and God clearly. We're no longer spiritually blind as such, but to be honest, we all still have blind spots in our hearts, in our lives. Blind spots means dark spots where we cannot see. And what we need still is the light of Jesus to shine in, open those parts, expose them, and bring health and bring life and bring freedom. And that's what each and every one of us still need. So can I ask you to stand? We're going we're gonna to close our time here. Paul will come up in a moment to close the meeting, but come back with me one more time to the room. Close your eyes. You've got the genie, you've got the doctor, and you've got Jesus of Nazareth. And now just let the genie and the doctor just fade away. Just fade away. And in some sense, the picture in your mind's eye right now is actually reality. You're actually in that moment right now. The person of Jesus is before each and every one of you by the power of his spirit. He's here in our midst tonight. And each and every one of us are standing in front of him. Come before him right now and hear him say to you, personally, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And take a moment. The answer to this question might change over the next days and weeks. That's fine. But what I want you to do right now is, is take a moment and reach some sort of conviction in your soul, however imperfect, on who you believe Jesus to be.
the person in front of you right now. Who do you believe him to be? And then what do you believe your greatest need is right now? What's your greatest need? And what wisdom and what insight do you need right where you are in your life? Come to him humbly, like a child, and in your heart right now, come to him and say, have mercy on me and help me. Help me. What's my next step of faith? What's my next step of following you? Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this evening, a unique gap to be in your presence, to be together, to have you do soul work on us, God. We do acknowledge you as the son of David, the Messiah, the great physician, the one who heals all our diseases, carries all our burdens, removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. And we thank you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us already. We thank you for your love for us displayed on the cross. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you have placed inside of us, allowing us to pray to you wherever we are and have your presence nearby. God, I pray as we leave this space this evening, as we go out into the week, whatever may come, whatever lockdown levels happen, whatever situations in life come before us, God, I pray that you will do a work in our heart this week to see you more clearly, to view your kingdom more accurately, and to be people who consistently humble ourselves before a great, beautiful, mighty Savior King. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your mercy towards us. Amen.